Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now I must go back to your Yorvambis. Back across the desert and down through all the catacombs to the vaster vaults beneath. Something is in my brain that commands me and will direct me. I tell you, I must go. Robert M. Price, the Lovecraft Geek here, broadcasting to you from the vaults of Yovambus. Seriously. Anyway, uh, let's see what say we uh, take a look at some questions. That is the name of the game around here. And uh, starting out with a slime bucket, Tom D. says, Can you give us a brief history of the Crypt of Cthulhu magazine? How did it start? Were there any other similar publications at the time? How did the writing and printing process work? How many subscribers were there? Any interesting stories about the com- contributors? I really like your drawing of Cthulhu versus Godzilla. That was on the cover number two. You should consider selling posters or prints of the magazine covers. The market is glutted with Cthulhu merchandise right now, but the crypt covers would be nice to have. Sure appreciate that. Um... Lance Thingmaker is uh, uh, working on uh, doing facsimile collections of the issues in book form. Not sure when the first one of those is going to come out. I suppose he could do the the um, the uh, posters too. That's not a bad idea. I'll try to remember to mention it to him. This started in uh, '81 in, I believe, August. I had gone up to Providence as I did two or three times a year back in those halcyon days to meet with the other Providence pals: Sam Gafford, S.T. Joshi, Mark Michaud, Ken Neely, Jason Eckhart, and uh, sometimes Carol would come along, and uh, Molly and Don Burleson. Boy, what a great uh, crew! Peter Cannon, leaving some out, I'm sure. And uh, I think the probably the first time I was up there, they mentioned to me that several of them were members of the EOD, the Esoteric Order of Dagon, Amateur Press Association. There were, something like, I think 39, for some reason, members. And uh, as you probably know, you were responsible to put out a couple of pages of Lovecraft-related stuff uh, every quarter and uh, send a copy... Uh, as many uh, copies as there were members uh, to the official editor who would who would uh, put together packs uh, of one each of all the contributions for each of the members. So you got to look at everybody's and then you'd trade comments. Of course, this is not... I guess this is still going, but the air has kind of been taken out of that whole thing uh, by uh, the internet and email and so forth and message boards and the like but this was before that and uh, it was a great way to keep up with uh, Lovecraftian buddies you wouldn't see very often and there was another one there was the Necronomicon APA out in headquartered out in uh, Wisconsin I guess Uh, Randy Everts uh, ran that one 
and uh, his uh, he did an, quite an elaborate, uh, perfect bound magazine called Etchings and Odysseys. And uh, Dave Schultz was in both of them. Many, Steve Maraconda and various people were in both. So was I. And uh, so I started Crypt of Cthulhu as an EOD zine, and then I quickly joined the Necronomicon. And so they all did quarterly mailings, but at the quarterly and cross-quarterly. So being in both of them, I was obliged to put out an issue eight times a year, which I loved doing. I, I wrote a lot of stuff, got Carol to do some puzzles, got local Lovecraft friends of mine to write various things. Some of it was satire, some of it was scholarship. I managed to get S.T. and uh, Dave Schultz and Don Burleson and Will Murray and others to uh, write scholarly stuff for Crypt. My philosophy was always to do a kind of blatant rip-off of Lovecraft studies, but with uh, humor and satire as well. And uh, so I uh, first did these just for the uh, APA readers, but I decided very early on to see if I could uh, get local fantasy bookstores and comic stores to sell them, and uh, I was glad to see that many of them did. Just a few issues in some cases. With Bob Weinberg, it would be 150 or so, and the various ones uh, around the country. And it was really exciting. My mom typed it up on an IBM Selectric. This is before computers, though she never got... Uh, she had been a... She had edited a yearbook in college and that she'd been my father's executive secretary for years now she was retired and she had a big kick out of, got a big kick out of uh, formatting and typing the things and then uh, we got them uh, printed up at the print uh, office at uh, at Montclair State where I was teaching as an adjunct and uh, it was really great uh, the uh, a lot of good scholarship was done in it over the years I got the I guess um, the last issue I published through Cryptic Publications was number 75, but we quickly picked up again with uh, Mark Michaud and Necronomicon Press taking over the publishing, but other than that, it was the same sort of, it was the same magazine. And then after a while, uh, uh, it uh, went to David Wynn, who uh, ran Mythos Books, a great Lovecraft book catalog, and he uh, he became the publisher published his own books, but also Crip for a few issues, and I think the last one we did was number 107. We never missed a beat, and sometimes had two issues come out at the same time, a special one of one kind or another. Uh, and during this time, I was also putting together um, sporadic issues of Astro Adventures, these neo-pulps, I called them. Um, risque stories, shudder stories, pulse-pounding adventure stories, spectral tales, various uh, Robert E. Howard booklets of unpublished stories and fragments. It was an enormous, all-consuming hobby that I thoroughly enjoyed. So did my mom. Uh, the whole family was in on doing uh, various aspects of it. And uh, I uh, miss it in many ways, though I would never have the time to... Uh, to uh, harass and pester people to write articles as I once did, but it was amazing. It went on as well as it did for so long. 
I was really gratified that, uh, that once I sent copies to people like Lynn Carter, Brian Lumley, Robert Block, Sprague DeCamp, Gary Myers, Colin Wilson, etc., they seemed to enjoy them and uh, would write letters of comment in, uh, Ramsey Campbell and others, and so you could get debates going in the mail call of Cthulhu. Uh, it, it was really terrific. Um, Starmont House, I think that's now folded into uh, Wildside Press. Uh, is that right, or am I thinking of somebody else? At any rate, uh, they published a couple of collections, about three collections of uh, stuff from the best of Crypt of Cthulhu, and uh, this is now decades ago. And uh, it was just so great and gave me a kind of an entree to... Uh, the mythos subculture and its luminaries that I never would have had otherwise. I realized what I was doing was the same sort of thing that these, uh, these fan editors did back in Lovecraft's day with uh, the fantasy fan, uh, fantasy magazine, the acolyte and all of that. It was just really terrific. And uh, I wrote a lot of the articles and wrote in uh, Lovecraft studies and even uh, some stuff in Nyctalops, which was a fiction and non-fiction magazine with incredible art by editor Harry Morris. Uh, there was an all-fiction magazine. I had something in back at that time, uh, Eldritch Tales. Some of the stuff in there was in the so bad it's good category, uh, but bad or good, it was a loads of fun magazine. I don't even know if that's still going anymore. Uh, but there were uh, several Cthulhu-related uh, fanzines and magazines. Again, Etchings and Odysseys was a notable one. And uh, this was the beginning, I guess, of the uh, Lovecraft boom. And, uh, of course, there was no... We had no idea the uh, proportions of the the Lovecraft and Cthulhu mania that uh, exists today. Uh, but it was, it was great fun. And uh, the people I met, the work we did... The product we put out, it was it was really terrific. Uh, and it's hard for me. I have to stop and, and remember that a whole lot of today's Lovecraftians have never really seen it. Or so, uh, just, uh, you know, an old relic or two here and there. But those are great days. Okay, here's some interesting questions from Tanya Kaiser. She says, what is the scariest or creepiest thing that has happened to you in real life? Hmm. What would that be? Ah, uh, scariest. Well, I guess that uh, that might... This is mundane, but when I uh, totaled the minivan once, swerving to avoid hitting a dog, and... Uh, the van turned over completely and uh, wound up in a ditch, and I uh, came out of it unscarred except for a kind of a deep gouge on one fingertip. I was really lucky. Oh, uh, I guess another one was when my little daughter, Victoria, was running out into traffic that she couldn't see, and luckily Carol grabbed her by the hair and stopped her. Oh, boy, I'm telling you, that was, uh, that was an incredible fright. I don't know if I've had any real eerie experiences other than watching nifty movies like The Ring and reading horror fiction, but I guess I have not had too many of those. Uh, part two of this, Tanya says, Lovecraft wrote about his dreams a lot. What's the scariest dream you ever had? 
Well, I can think of one that really shouldn't have been frightening, but I remember going, walking up to the top of a steep, small hill, and the only thing at the top of it was a phone booth, and uh, it was ringing, and I picked up the phone, and it was uh, somebody I didn't know asking for a friend of mine by name. And for some reason, as I heard the voice asking its mundane question, I was just flooded with panic and fear and woke up heart-pounding and all of that. Scary, but it shouldn't have been. Uh, Another one that was really uh, frightening, though this uh, I think of in terms of Rudolf Otto's the Mysterium Tremendum. I had a dream that I was in a forest clearing and uh, somebody was approaching. Uh, I could just begin to see them as they approached through the trees. And uh, it, it, was, it seemed gray or black and white until the figure emerged into the clearing and I could see it in full color and it was Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, it, it was no... Uh, it wasn't dream-like. It seemed perfectly real. And as I saw him, I remember thinking, you know, this is the real thing. This is the man himself. And again, I was terrified, uh, and I woke up heart-pounding, gasping for breath. Again, the numinous, uh, not a threat or anything, but boy, was that frightening. And uh, I know I've had other ones that are more conventional nightmares, but I can't really remember any longer. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I guess that's the one that sticks out the most. Oh, boy. Thanks, Tanya. Let's see here. This is from Michael. Can I read this? Uh, Kochi. Too far from the computer screen here. I believe back in episode 9 you mentioned Simon of Gitta by Richard L. Tierney. This name rang a bell. After some digging through my stack of mythos tales, I found Flashing Swords, number one, Lynn Carter edited the Sword and Sorcery anthology series. The story contained in Flashing Swords 1, the ring of set was like a breath of fetid air. In other words, I loved it. Here's my question and my problem when trying to locate other Simon of Gitta stories. The best single source seems to be the Scroll of Thoth released by Chaosium and edited by you. Unfortunately, this volume is out of print and begins at around $60 on Amazon. Do you know if uh, Mr. Tierney retains the rights uh, to his stories? I'm sure he does. If so, can you suggest to him publishing them digitally? I mean, heck, even if Chaosium uh, has let... The Scroll of Thoth go out of print, you and he could recreate it, update it, and make it available on Kindle and split the profits. In interviews, Mr. Tierney has stated that he believes his work only appeals to a small niche of fans. It seems a true shame that a writer of Mr. Tierney's creativity is not more well-known. Perhaps there is still time to make him more well-known. Uh, I'm all in favor of that. I will ask him. I was just, just heard from him the other day. Uh, I don't think he'd uh, really want to be involved in it. He's more of a stranger to this kind of uh, you know, technical stuff than I am, but it might well be possible to uh, scan the book and so forth. We'll see. That's a good idea. 
then Michael concludes, also, I've recently begun watching the HBO series True Detective, and I find it astonishingly good. References to the King in Yellow and all that. Have you seen it? What is your opinion? Haven't seen it? Don't get HBO. Did order the uh, the DVD, though it hasn't come. I don't know, maybe it didn't have enough money to cover it. Maybe it hasn't come out yet. I don't even know. But I hope to see it. I hope uh, the... Uh, current plagiarism scandal over it uh, doesn't put a damper on my enjoyment, but I do hope to see it at some point. Though I gotta confess, there is so much interesting horror and Lovecraftian and mythos horror that uh, I just despair of keeping up with everything, so I, I'm not, you know, avid to, to get to this. Uh, I'm sure it's good. I do hope to see it, but it, I just can't keep up with everything. I'm really more interested in uh, rereading the old stuff, but that hasn't stopped me from buying some interesting new stuff, and that'll be among them, I guess. This is from Mark Seifert, who says, Brother in Almus in Metatron. Uh, while I don't regard it as his best work, after reading the HPL Hazel Heald collaboration Out of the Eons, I've been captivated by their fantastic yet all-too-brief description of the mythical civilization of Mew. Since I have been inspired to try my hand at penning some fiction on this lost continent in humanity's shrouded past, uh, I'm, uh, uh, let's, oh, I'm sorry, that should have been all one sentence there. I'm well aware of Lynn Carter's Zothic tales, particularly the stories the Red Offering and the Thing in the Pit, which are actually said in Ancient Mew. But I was wondering if there were any other authors who have tried to tackle the Lovecraftian version of the Mew legend in any great detail. Yogg-Sothoth Nebladzin. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, Lovecraft uh, in a... Well, if, with Hazel Heald, he, he wrote the whole thing. Uh, he brought in the Mew stuff and all of that. Uh, she just had the most uh, basic idea of a mummy with a living brain on display somewhere, and Lovecraft wrote the whole thing. Uh, there's one in which he didn't contribute so much, uh, a story called uh, The Bruise or The Trap. I, oh, no, wait a minute, The Trap is different, isn't it? Oh, boy. Uh, it's a long uh, story that bears the name Henry Whitehead, uh, Episcopal priest and weird fiction author, correspondent of Lovecraft. He, uh, oh man, what was it? Uh, it had a couple of possible titles. But it, it's not in the uh, horror in the museum collection, I don't believe. But in this, Lovecraft seems to have... Because this guy gets a bruise, a knock on the head that uh, sends him a la Robert E. Howard stories back into an earlier incarnation where he plays a war chief on the lost continent of Mew. And uh, it looks like a good bit of that he owed to Lovecraft. So I would try to get a hold of that. Oh, yeah, I know what it is. Um, the hero was named Bothon... B-O-T-H-O-N, and I think it was published as Bothon. Uh, and uh, that, that's probably published somewhere. I wish, I mean, I must be. Uh, I can't remember. I know I read it in uh, S.T. Joshi's TypeScript decades ago. It's got to be out there somewhere, though. But that would be some Lovecraftian, Muvian uh, material. 
I have an old novel called Monsters of Mew, but I can't think of the author's name. It's not particularly Lovecraftian. It's sort of a lost race novel, but that'd be pretty interesting and worth getting. Um, hmm. I am not as up as I should be on contemporary mythos authors, so I don't know if anybody else has set anything in in Mew um, after Lynn Carter. Probably, but uh, boy, I uh, can't tell you. Uh, if you... Uh, have uh, oh brother my uh, wits are fading this uh, the, one of these indices of references uh, mythos references in various writers uh, that would be a way of looking it up but I can't really think of it um, yeah Lemuria is going to come up here in a minute oh well yeah let's uh Oh, well, I'll wait and get to that in a second. Okay, here's one from Al Farazan, 73. He says, It seems kind of obvious to me, so I was surprised that I couldn't find any links between Lovecraft's What the Moon Brings and Edgar Allan Poe's The City and the Sea. I'm probably not looking in the right places. Here are some excerpts to compare from Poe. Lo, death has reared himself a throne in a strange city lying alone, far down within the dim west where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. There shrines and palaces and towers, time-eaten towers that tremble not, resemble nothing that is ours, Around by lifting winds forgot, resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie. No rays from the holy heaven come down on the long night-time of that town, but light from out the lurid sea streams up the turrets silently, gleams up the pinnacles far and free. Lovecraft but when that moon went over to the west, and the still tide ebbed from the sullen shore, I saw in that light old spires that the waves almost uncovered, and white columns gay with festoons of green seaweed. And knowing that to this sunken place all the dead had come, I trembled and did not wish again to speak with the lotus faces. So I watched the tide go out under that sinking moon and saw gleaming the spires, the towers, and the roofs of that dead, dripping city. And as I watched, my nostrils tried to close against the perfume-conquering stench of the world's dead, for truly in this unplaced and forgotten spot had all the flesh of the churchyards gathered for puffy sea-worms to gnaw and glut upon." Both are cities with towers sticking out of the water, and both pieces end with something horrible. In Poe, death looks gigantically down before the city is illumined, illuminated by hellfire, but for Lovecraft, the waves reveal a hideous giant icon rising out of the water. There's nothing too difficult about that connection. 
I know Lovecraft was greatly influenced by Poe, but I also wondered if J.R.R. Tolkien might have been influenced by what the moon brings. In the two towers, Frodo crosses the dead marshes, where ghosts and corpses lure people into the water where they drown. Frodo says, There are dead things, dead faces in the water, and he's nearly drowned because he stares at them too long. In Lovecraft's story, the main character is being lured downstream by the lotus blossoms floating in the river, so-called lotus blossoms, in quotes. He describes them as staring back with a sinister resignation of calm, dead faces who whispered sadly and bade me follow. It seems as if the lotus blossoms represent dead souls traveling to the dead city. Finally, in his horror, he plunges himself into the water and drowns rather than looking look at the giant icon. It might be a stretch to connect Tolkien to Lovecraft directly, since I've heard that he based the dead marshes on body Lovecraft. I mean, not Tolkien. He based the dead marshes on bodies he saw in the Battle of the Somme and supernaturally luring people to their death is a common legend, but I thought I would mention it anyway and see if you knew anything about these links. I've seen other people try to suggest that Tolkien shared themes and descriptions with Lovecraft, but never in this context. i got to admit, I have no information about this. It is dangerous to point out, to, to uh, what what do you say, uh, posit causation when all you can show is correlation, or in this case, parallels. Usually you have to have more uh, parallels uh, to uh, make dependency look likely. And since Tolkien himself gave a, a, an alternate, uh, different explanation for this, I think uh, Occam's Razor forbids us to look for anything else, and as you say, these themes are not that hard to come by. It is fascinating, though, in its own right, to see these uh, these fa- these uh, these striking similarities between Poe, Lovecraft, and Tolkien. Now, this would have made a good crypt article. This is the kind of thing we used to do in Crypt of Cthulhu. So I appreciate it. It's almost like we're sharing an issue with uh, the listeners. Thanks a bunch, Al. Oh, let's see. What well, this is a long one. Um, okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. This is an interesting from from Verge, V I R G E. I hope I'm saying that right. Felicitations, hierophant of Lovecraftian studies. Have you read the Atlan series by Jane Gaskell? Yes, indeed. Though many, many years ago. I ask about these novels because they are sterling examples of new weird fiction, even though they were written long, long before that was a recognized subgenre. <laughs> I never heard of it. Uh, generally, the Atlan saga is compared to Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast trilogy, uh, which is obviously an influence on it, and which everyone listening to this podcast should read as well. I'm ashamed to say, by the way, I have never read it uh, got it. I'll have to sometime. I've been meaning to for about 50 years. Anyway, uh, but much uh, of Gaskell's series also reads like Clark Ashton Smith with some Lovecraft and a tiny bit of Edgar Rice Burroughs thrown in. No wonder I liked it. 
For clarity, it's the Tarzan in the golden ruins of Opar burrows rather than the John Carter sword-fighting-on-Mars burrows. Much like Lovecraft, Gaskell mixes theosophy and Aztec mythology and paints the result with a gothic brush. Uh, the books are set in a fantasy prehistory that posits a very eldritch South America. They have just about everything, a plucky but constantly imperiled protagonist, a lost continent, a land war between the north and the south over said lost continent, lizard men and ape men, occasional witchcraft, carnivorous riding birds, giant reptiles, abduction, rape, incest, interspecies mating, and an evil priest and his minions, a temple of doom, a tentacled creature or two, a V.C. Andrews-esque aura of wrongness, and more. The characters in these novels make references to ancient Atlan, which is the lost continent as it was before the current civilization came to dominate it. We're told that vestiges of ancient Atlan remain in the continent and are just waiting to take possession of it again, uh, and there is ample reason to believe that Atlan itself is self-aware, as in Algernon Blackwood's The Willows. Furthermore, the narrator speaks now and then of the Changeless, capital C, whom we learn little about but are apparently immortal humanoid abominations with supernatural powers, and the series is rife with lush descriptions of the jungle, something Lovecraft has in The Shadow Out of Time, a significant reason I'm so fond of that story. Most importantly, Gaskell, like Lovecraft and Smith, had a staggering imagination— the major differences between Gaskell's and Lovecraft's fiction are that the lead in the Atlan series is female and a princess to boot, and that Gaskell's work is very overtly sexual and action-packed. That's not to say that it's not atmospheric. We get a sense of the hungry jungle and oppressive castle very early on, and that sense never ceases— but there are orders of magnitude, more blood spilled and bodily fluids exchanged than in anything Lovecraft wrote. Sadly, the Atlan series is out of print, though you can find copies of all five of its installments at online used bookstores such as Biblio and Thrift Books. I'm sure ABE Books and uh, Bookfinder would happen to. If any series calls for a reprinting by Centipede Press, it is this one. Speaking of which, I would be astonished if Gene Wolfe did not read the Atlan books before writing the book of the New Sun. Uh, they are very similar in a number of ways, but if we want an affordable reprinting of the series, then I nominate Galans. Uh, Atlan could use a gargantuan one-volume edition a la the Complete Chronicles of Conan. Uh, the... Yeah, I... I read it and enjoyed it long ago. One of those things I'll have to, to read again. Uh, I doubt if I would have, uh, in a superficial jerk that I was, I doubt if I would have bought these books if not for the great Frank Frazetta and Jeff Jones covers, but those guys seduced me into loads of great stuff I'm delighted to have read. Okay, the Cthulhu mythos can cross over fairly neatly with many other intellectual properties, but reading Gaskell's magnum opus made me wonder, can Lovecraft's antediluvian world exist in the same universe as other fantasists' visions of prehistory? 
Can we have both Rillier and Atlantis in the same timeline, or are they synonymous? The Call of Cthulhu seems to imply the latter. Thurston mentions the story of Atlantis and the lost Lemuria as one of the continent, uh, one of the contents he correlated, possibly hinting that Atlantis is a euphemistically distorted Rillier. Uh, on one nudely appendage, I like to imagine that Atlantis could coexist with Rillier. The more fantastic ancient cities, the better. But another part of me finds a certain morbid satisfaction in thinking that a civilization supposedly unequaled in its sophistication was actually a brutal hell of alien architecture and slimy cephalopodic monstrosities from outer space. Regarding those monstrosities, I always assumed that the Cthulhu spawn and the Deep Ones were two separate species, specifically that Cthulhu reproduced asexually and held a sort of psychic sway over its many children, and the Deep Ones were either descended directly from Dagon and Hydra, or were more experiments by the Elder Things. Since Deep Ones and humans can produce viable offspring, that technically makes them the same species. Ah, interesting, yeah. So maybe some of the Elder Things jokes developed adaptations for aquatic living. Remember, created mankind is a joke or a mistake, right? That wouldn't explain the Deep Ones' immortality, though. What do you think? Is it possible for Rillier and Atlantis, Lemuria, or Mew to coexist? Are we to gather from Clark Ashton Smith's Posidonis stories that the answer to that question is yes? And I understand that Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, which make explicit references to Atlantis, share a universe with the Cthulhu mythos, or am I completely wrong in my assumption about the other two bodies of fiction and Cthulhu's night nightmare corpse city is mutually exclusive with Theosophy's favorite continent? Uh, P.S. I reread The Shadow Out of Time, and Peasley talks to an Atlantean high priest while a prisoner, so that settles the question of whether Atlantis exists in Lovecraft's timeline, unless Peasley is misidentifying Rillier as Atlantis, but I doubt that. Shame on me for not remembering. Uh, yeah, let's see. Uh, I think, Verge, that you're correct that that Lovecraft, Smith, and Howard make it pretty clear, not real often, but clear enough that uh, that uh, the Hyborian Age, the the whole uh, mythos thing, and uh, uh, the uh, Hyperborea and all that stuff do take place in the same narrative universe. I like to call it the Weird Tales cosmology. There, there's Clark Ashton, the high priest of Atlantis that Lovecraft mentions, and uh, needless to say, Bloch's mythos stories occur in the same uh, uh, narrative universe. Remember, in uh, uh, Howard said he would like to think that his Atlantean Fu Manchu skull face or Cthulhu's was the same as Cthulhu. He mentions it to Lovecraft in, uh, in a letter, and, and it's pretty clear that that's what he intends. In The Whisperer and Darkness, Lovecraft has uh, um, Wilmarth uh, recall how Akeley tells him about the cult of Bran. 
uh, probably not the uh, the breakfast cereal, but Bran McMorn. And uh, in The Shadow Out of Time, uh, Peasley also meets Krom Yah, a, Sumeri- a Sumerian chieftain. Uh, there's not a lot of overt Lovecraftian references in Howard, but in his Conan stories. But on the other hand, you, you've got uh, his mythos stories, like the thing on the roof and the black stone, which, are, which refer to Lovecraftian stuff and, and are referred to in Lovecraft. And uh, King Cull, of course. Uh, Cull is the king of Atlantis. And uh, it all does tie together. I don't think there really is any contradiction. And, uh, of course, the greatest greatest instance of of making hay out of this is Richard Tierney's novel, The Winds of Tsar, which just incredibly, uh, effectively tie this stuff together with the authentic feel of the pulps. Uh, that tyranny, unbelievable. What a, uh, what a genius. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, they, they do exist together. And to me, the big question is whether Lemuria and Mew are supposed to be the same continent. And Lynn Carter thought they were, but I uh, have always thought that was an error on his part because l- the whole idea of Lemuria is that it's in the Indian Ocean, uh, right? It connected, you know, th- we now know it didn't exist, but the idea was it, uh, it connected Madagascar and India, and uh, it was in the Indian Ocean. That was the whole idea. And uh, Mew is supposed to be way out in the Pacific. So I, I don't uh, think they're uh, supposed to be the same. Uh, and, of course, Lovecraft mentions Mew. Uh, and so I don't think there's uh, any conflict there. In fact, I have a story out uh, called The Sword of Thongor in which uh, uh, there's a Muvian invasion of some islands to the uh, east of Lemuria and uh, the Lemurian mainland. And uh, so it's fundamental to that story that they're not the same thing, but the, I do believe that is the uh, the implication. Oh, uh, let's see. Um, how about... Oh, boy, i got a lot left here. You know, last time I had had in hand and begged for some more questions because I thought I was out. Uh, little did I realize I had two different slime bucket files and now I got uh, more questions that I can readily deal with. Let me just do one more here. Um, is, who is this one from? Oh, I think that was bad about this. I think this one was uh, from uh, Verge also, yeah, but uh, this next one I think I've lost the, the name of. I apologize for that. Salutations! I've emerged yet again from my Uranian temple of iridescent flames and brassy musical numbers to ask your opinion on something that will never happen except in a hypothetical alternative universe. 
Many Lovecraft fans are disappointed in Guillermo del Toro's decision to cancel his planned adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. Rumor has it that he's since reconsidered, but recently I started wondering, what would you think if Hayao Miyazaki adapted the novel instead? I must admit, I am not familiar with him. Anyway, to begin with, it contains two of his main obsessions, aviation and subtle social commentary. Moreover, try to visualize uh, Miyazaki's Mountains of Madness. Wouldn't that be by turns jaw-droppingly gorgeous and uh, starkly horrific? You've said that you're not familiar with much anime, but just do an image search for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind or Castle in the Sky, and you'll see what I mean. Given how optimistic his storylines tend to be, some might think him an odd choice to helm a Lovecraft adaptation. However, I believe such an understanding... I'm sorry, I believe such an undertaking would be a fine opportunity for him to try something very, though not completely, different. I'm also told that the original Nausicaa, I assume that's how you say it, with two A's at the end, comics had a much more nihilistic ending than the movie's message of renewed hope. Because I have yet to read them, I cannot comment. I don't know what Miyazaki's opinion of At the Mountains of Madness is, or whether he's even read it, for that matter. A doomed expedition to the South Pole, directed by Hayao Miyazaki, definitely soothes me when I picture it. But would you watch an animated version of the Mountains of Madness, and would you expect anyone else to, especially if the movie wasn't originally in English? Sure. Uh, or suppose Miyazaki made one of the main characters female. His films are renowned for their dynamic heroines, some of whom don't even get involved in romance subplots, even when the male characters show potential interest in them. Now that I've written that, I'm imagining Dyer as an adventurous but no-nonsense female professor, with Danforth as her male sidekick, who might have an innocent and unsubstantiated crush on her, but is content just to accompany her on the expedition. Thank you for humoring me, oh, endlessly patient one. Ah, oh, don't have to uh, humor you. Uh, don't have to be patient. That's really interesting. I'd certainly welcome that kind of treatment of At the Mountains of Madness. And uh, you always have to ask if the uh, the gender of a character really is integral to their narrative function. And uh, I remember suggesting, I did a course at... Uh, Drew once, I, I taught a, a, a some sort of seminar or something on uh, uh, literary criticism in the New Testament, and I uh, suggested that it really would not make any difference uh, if uh, if the Jesus character were female, uh, and, and I've also probably gotten uh, people willing to certify me as uh, insane by suggesting that uh, my choice for a new Conan would be Lucy Lawless, that uh, the way she plays Xena uh, and her her attitude and all of that, she'd be a great Conan, just wouldn't really matter that Conan was a man or a woman. Well, certainly less so here. What the heck, why not? Yeah, sounds good. Mmm... Well, I guess I better get going. I uh, do have um, some other stuff i got to start recording. 
a uh, a book of mine that uh, somebody wants to do as a as a uh, an audio book, uh, an audio version of my book, uh, the case against the case for Christ, and uh, I better take a crack at that. Uh, if anybody follows the Bible Geek, I just did one of those, and it ought to be posted pretty soon, as this will, uh, too. So thanks for the questions. Keep them coming, though. I do have uh, a good bit more, but let's just consider that a cushion. I'm going to need more soon. So thanks for being with me on the uh, Lovecraft Geek, and if you would like to help out an old Lovecraft Hierophant and his family uh, by going to my website and... Uh, robertmprice.mindvendor.com and looking for the PayPal icon, which I think is on the left in the left-hand column. Uh, Sure would appreciate it. And uh, that's my email for that is criticus at a c r i t i c u s at aol dot com. But there's no admission price to the uh, the Lovecraft geek. Just if you can't help, it would be helpful. Anyway, I will look forward to seeing you soon on The Lovecraft Geek, brought to you from the vaults of Yovambus. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos Communities Everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. To catch up with Dr. Price's projects, purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.